This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Rhino Horns. Do you want a giant fingernail? Get your Rhino Horn today. Welcome to episode six of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today we're talking about rare earth minerals, something you might hear about in Webkin's after hearing, Welcome to the Curio Shop. Hope you find what you're looking for. While Artie the dog who runs the Curio Shop may have an extensive knowledge of rare gems and treasures, this type of geological rarity isn't really his specialty. Rare earth minerals may seem like a random topic, but they're actually found in a diverse range of common products, such as computers, cell phones, MRI machines, cinema projectors, and airplane engines. Rare earths, 17 minerals you may barely remember from high school chemistry or geology. As the global demand for smartphones soars, the sources of some of the rare components are becoming exhausted. It's the U.S. Army planning to fund construction of rare earths processing facilities. That's right. Rare earth minerals are sort of like my parents, absolutely essential for my daily life, even though I probably don't think about all they do enough. But thinking about them is crucial because, well, they make up half the sweaty penguins' audience. Unlike my parents, though, rare earth minerals carry quite a few environmental and health risks. So we're going to discuss what those risks are, some of the economic and foreign policy factors at play, and what improvements we can make. But first, you may be wondering, what exactly are rare earth minerals? Well, rare earth elements are a group of 17 metals naturally occurring in Earth's crust. You can find them all on the periodic table, and if you forgot 10th grade chemistry, here's a quick song to bring you up to speed. And now, ASAP Science presents the elements of the periodic table. There's hydrogen and helium, the lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon everywhere, nitrogen all through the air, oxygen, so you can read and find all your pretty teeth, we also write up the sign, so we emphasize the signs, it's not easy, oh no, we're in the silicon, got all that? Good. There are two ways to label these metals, rare earth elements and rare earth minerals, and these labels have to do with the concentration. Rare earth elements describe any concentration of them existing within the earth's crust, whereas rare earth minerals describe concentrated deposits of these metals, which often exist in ore deposits, or natural materials from which we can profitably mine minerals. Essentially, these two labels describe two different iterations of the same thing, like a Chuck E. Cheese pizza and a Pasquale's pizza. Counterintuitively, rare earth elements are actually fairly abundant within the Earth's crust. Like people whose Tinder bios say, just a gym looking for my Pam, Bears, Beats, Battlescar Galactica, they're actually all over the place. We call them rare because concentrated deposits of rare earth minerals are uncommon, and extracting them is expensive and can be dangerous. Rare earths are typically mixed in with other metals when they come out of the earth, and it can be difficult to remove the other metals to get them isolated, since they've got more experience resisting isolation than your friend who broke coronavirus quarantine to go to a pool party. While economically viable deposits are scarce, rare earths are common in many products we use. If you want an electric car, if you want a missile guidance system, if you want an iPad, 
or an MRI machine, you've got to use these customized and very specific magnets. Those magnets are made by some of the stuff, neodymium, et cetera, the rare earths that come from the mine like this. Everyday items like computers, phones, and electric car batteries depend on rare earths, which are used to form powerful magnets necessary to the function of these goods. So without rare earths, you would never be able to stream Sharknado 2 or seduce the Grim Reaper on Sims. They are also an important component of larger scale systems such as national security and even renewable energy. If you want to make electric cars, solar panels, you want to make hydro, wind, whatever it is, you need rare earth minerals. It's true. Most sources of renewable energy depend upon rare earths in production. And while that certainly does not come close to canceling out the environmental and health impacts of fossil fuels, we mustn't forget that clean energy isn't actually 100% clean, unless we can find a hamster big enough to power the world by running. So what exactly are the environmental impacts associated with rare earth production? Let's start with the mining process. Since rare earths are typically only available in small concentrations, most are mined with open pit mining where a large area of land is disrupted, threatening the local ecosystem and any human life that existed on that land. When exposing and crushing rock that has been underground for a very long time, numerous pollutants like heavy metals and radioactive material can enter the wastewater, and leftover materials called tailings can then enter groundwater, soil, and vegetation if proper regulations are not enforced. These disruptions to the environment can ultimately cause severe health problems for people exposed to the mines, such as cancer, cardiovascular issues, and respiratory problems. There are also negative environmental impacts from rare earth refinement, the process in which we try to concentrate and purify rare earths. This process requires harsh chemicals, and it produces a large mass of liquid and solid waste which is often contaminated with toxic materials. If you've digested Taco Bell's Flamin' Hot Doritos Locos Tacos, you know exactly what I mean. Many of the contaminants from the refinement process are metals, including aluminum, arsenic, cadmium, and lead, and when they enter the environment, they massively overstay their welcome, sort of like Rebecca Black's It's Friday song, or Facebook. Many of these metals are carcinogens, some cause birth defects, and some shut down vital organ systems. Rare earth refinement also emits sulfur dioxide, which contributes to acid rain, and hydrochloric acid, which can become a stronger, more dangerous acid when mixed with water. Furthermore, mining and refinement both use a lot of water, which drains scarce water resources from the ecosystem, preventing plants, animals, and humans from using it. Since the water that is used becomes contaminated, often with toxic material, it can cause more adverse environmental impacts, not to mention the fact that humans can no longer reuse that water. Currently, rare earth mining and processing is concentrated in one place. And China effectively controls 85 to 90% of the world market. It's true. China doesn't just dominate Great Walls and Olympic opening ceremonies, they also dominate the global rare earths mining and processing market. A 2017 report of World Mine Reserves estimated that China has about 44 million metric tons of rare earth mineral reserves, the largest of any country in the world. Other countries have reserves as well and participate in the global market, but China's sheer volume gives them a geologic advantage. 
China's government has also supported their path to dominance. Around the 90s and 2000s, China drove most other producing countries, including the United States, out of the market by making rare earths ridiculously cheap, both through government subsidies and a lack of sensible environmental regulations. They do it, to your point, with, with government subsidies. They do it without any concern for the environment. A lot of the ways they refine these elements is environmentally unsound, if not actually dangerous for the human beings around it. Regulations equate to added production cost and therefore higher prices. And since the United States did not want to put workers and citizens in harm's way by relaxing regulations, we failed to compete. While this means we can get rare earths at low cost, this arrangement also causes numerous negative consequences. But we as a society here in the United States have decided mining's bad. We don't want those impacts. So we've shifted them off seas. Well, by shifting them off seas, we've actually amplified the impacts. We have human rights issues and massive environmental issues. Shifting the extraction and processing of rare earths overseas to countries with less regulation exacerbates the negative environmental impacts. Chinese refineries, for example, lack appropriate waste treatment systems, which has led to high pollution levels surrounding them that could have been curbed with better oversight. As for mining, China has recently taken action to reduce the harmful effects, like cracking down on highly polluting illegal mining operations and putting money into mitigating damage. They also consolidated all rare earth mining in their country into six state-owned enterprises, and while this would ostensibly make regulation more enforceable, it can also bring economic inefficiencies by preventing free market competition. Plus, many locals report that the state-owned enterprises are actually just as bad as the illegal operations, because they can continue environmentally unsound practices with the support of local authorities afraid to take action against government-owned enterprises. In fact, the Chinese Ministry of Industry and Information Technology estimates that the cost of cleaning up the damage in just one highly mined province would equate to about 5.5 billion U.S. dollars, roughly equal to the amount Dak Prescott thinks he deserves in his next contract. I mean, come on, Dak, you only have one playoff win. You couldn't even beat the Jets last year. Since most rare earth mining occurs in China, most of these negative environmental and health impacts also occur in China, for miners and for residents living near the mines. As someone from the United States, that may make the issue feel far away, and one could argue that the U.S. and other countries shouldn't be getting involved in an issue mostly isolated to China. One could also argue that countries like the U.S. that relied on rare earths from China for decades and benefited from their environmental carelessness should send some funds to clean up these areas to improve those regions' environment and quality of life. But regardless of whether or not the U.S. sends aid at a state level, there are other solutions which could help address the environmental and health challenges while improving America's national security and economy. One potential solution is to seek out other sources of rare earths from countries with better regulation. For example, right here in the United States. The United States used to supply most of the world's rare earths before China began subsidizing and ignoring environmental and health hazards. The only rare earths mine in the United States is the Mountain Pass Mine in California, which is surprisingly not the name of a ride at Disneyland. Mountain Pass is quite large, and it has recently undergone modernization. 
The mine's owner, MP Materials, has also stated that they will start their own refining operation in the U.S. by this year. Since U.S. mines are subject to fairly strict rules on air pollution and toxic waste, domestic production could curb the environmental and health impacts of rare earth minerals. The biggest flaw with this potential solution is that as long as the global market for rare earths is primarily driven by price, China will likely continue to be the dominant producer, as the United States and other countries are unwilling and unable to conduct the same kind of low-cost, high-pollution methods of extraction. This means that without some kind of mandate or tax incentive, companies would still purchase the subsidized rare earths from China. One path would be for the U.S. to subsidize the domestic product, but this would both cost taxpayer money and make rare earths cost less than they would in a free market. Given the consequences of using rare earths, making them cheaper is moving in the wrong direction. Another option, once American rare earths are available, is to place a tariff on the imported rare earths from China. Tariffs, or taxes on imports or exports, are generally hated by economists because they actually hurt the economies of both countries. But lawmakers often try tariffs to bolster domestic manufacturing and encourage another country to adopt a different behavior. For example, by taxing Chinese rare earth mineral imports and telling China to enact better practices, the price for American consumers would go up, causing them to buy more American rare earths and less Chinese ones, and China would be hit by the lost business. However, this tactic has downsides too. China could say screw you and place a tariff on one of our exports instead, which often happens. Companies can also find creative ways to work around the tariffs. We want to get this ball to the US, and it's subject to import taxes. But if a company sends it to another country first, say Vietnam, and makes a tiny change to it, the company can now argue that this ball is a Vietnamese product, not a Chinese one. This may sound a bit silly and is technically illegal, but it happens all the time, and customs agents don't have time to inspect every single item. They're too busy looking at my EpiPen case suspiciously for 10 minutes while I stand there trying to think about anything besides bomb jokes. We can also just use less rare earth minerals, and no, that does not mean destroying your phone, crashing your car, jetting off to some unknown island with no connection to the rest of the world and hunting for food and water until one day you find a hatchet with a clock counting down and must type the numbers 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, 42, repeatedly for weeks on end until one day you find the others. One way in which we can use fewer newly extracted rare earths is by recycling or recovering rare earths from existing products or from other sources of waste. The current status of rare earths recycling, like the Game of Thrones finale, has a lot of room for improvement. A 2019 report states that less than 5% of rare earths are recycled from end-of-life devices, with the rest becoming waste and being removed from any type of production. While the current rate of rare earth recycling is low, international demand is increasing rapidly, and it becomes more difficult to extract rare earth minerals after we mine the more accessible areas. Thus, countries may decide that it's more economically viable to offer better recycling opportunities. Unfortunately, while the cost is coming down as we continue to innovate, existing recycling technologies are still somewhat expensive. 
it remains difficult to isolate pure rare earths from other materials in a product, kind of like it would be hard to take all the raspberries out of a smoothie that has already been blended. Another promising possibility is to recover rare earths from other sources of waste, as these West Virginia University researchers discovered. They're separating a specific group of minerals, rare earth elements they're called, from a solution derived from acid mine drainage sludge. By recovering rare earths from the sludge left behind from acid mine drainage or the outflow of acidic water from former metal or coal mines, we could take environmentally harmful waste and use it to access more rare earths. This idea is still in progress, but if it works, it could give us more rare earths and help with the environmental problems of acid mine drainage. So, win-win. Manufacturers are also incentivizing ways to reduce the required amount of rare earths for goods to function. In 2010, China began limiting exports of rare earths to Japan, and Japanese companies like Hitachi and Mitsubishi began to construct their goods differently to limit the use of rare earths. In 2018, Toyota announced that they had created a new magnet for electric car motors, which reduced rare earth use by about 20%. While it is unlikely that production of these goods will cease to depend on rare earths, manufacturers can absolutely find ways to scale back, and likely would if prices of rare earths were to increase. However, alternatives to rare earths can also sometimes have negative human or environmental impacts of their own, so each product must be analyzed on a case-by-case -case basis. While these innovations are exciting, a more cost-effective option we can implement more quickly is to encourage the reuse of goods produced with rare earths. While it may not be possible to reuse all goods if they are damaged or too old to function, resale or donation of items like computers and cell phones would reduce our rare earths consumption, people who can't afford new ones could have a cheaper option, and people who do buy new would be able to sell their old electronics. Companies like eBay, Gazelle, and Declutter, among others, offer people the opportunity to sell their used iPhones and confirm that they're in good shape for prospective buyers, and governments could consider promoting the reuse of technology or even offering monetary incentives. We could also use fewer newly extracted rare earths by consuming less items that use them in general. When we buy a new phone or computer every two years instead of waiting for our current one to break or selling it, we are not only consuming more rare earths than we need to, but our old phones and computers often become e-waste, which sends toxic and often flammable materials to landfills. People can also buy higher quality goods when they can afford them, which generally means they don't have to replace them as often, both conserving on rare earths and if they keep them for long enough, it could equate to the same cost of getting a lower quality product and having to replace it. We can also just use some common sense. Don't jump into the pool with your phone in your bathing suit. Don't take your phone on a roller coaster. Don't put your phone in a blender. Yeah, I'm talking to you, blend tech. And please, for the love of God, don't throw your new iPhone on the ground because you wanted a Samsung Galaxy 7. Give me that phone. Give it here. Why is you throwing that phone and breaking that phone like that? I'm not giving you no Galaxy 7. Give me that phone. Give it here. Let me see what you done did. Let me see. Why did you do that phone like that? What is wrong with you? Stop doing that. 
I mean, this kid doesn't just throw his phone on the ground. He straight up steps on it and then dances around on it while it's under his feet. I'm not even joking, he even dabs on it. I think the real story here is that a human being had an iPhone and wanted a Samsung Galaxy 7. Does this kid realize that his text will be green forever now? I mean, I'm not picky when I'm looking for new friends, the more the merrier, but green texts are a deal breaker on par with hating dogs and eating pineapple on pizza. However, some companies make it difficult for consumers to continue using aging products by preventing users from seeking outside contractors to repair their broken products and no longer offering software updates for products of a certain age. Just listen to this person trying to use an iPhone 4 in 2019. The highest OS uh, the phone can run is 7.1.2. Therefore, all the apps are completely outdated and going to be running extremely slow. Exactly. Although completely outdated and running extremely slow is a much better descriptor for Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers. Oh, you thought I'd be done with Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers jokes after the one in the lead paint episode? You thought I'd do NFL jokes roasting all the teams and stay neutral? You thought I'd already done one NFL joke in this episode so I couldn't possibly do another? Well, you thought wrong. You thought very, very wrong. For reference, the newest OS available is 13, meaning the Apple has not allowed old phones like the iPhone 4 to have software updates for a long time. This makes the older products prone to viruses, and in many cases means users can't update applications. Thus, we as consumers often don't have the opportunity to use devices for their entire lifespan. To make a big impact, tech companies would need to change their systems in this regard, and it's worth noting that to maximize their profits, companies are currently incentivized to make buying a new phone as necessary as possible until their users throw their phone on the ground, dab on it, and demand a Samsung Galaxy 7. But legislators could create policies to discourage that practice. Not only would it be beneficial to the environment and human health, but it would also make technology more accessible in the long run, since people wouldn't have to replace it every few years. None of these solutions are perfect or easy, but many provide opportunities to innovate, make technology cheaper and more accessible, and get rid of a lot of inconveniences while scaling back on rare earth minerals. Personally, I don't like having to set up new laptops and phones, and would be thrilled to have one that lasts 10 years. Luckily, there are so many possible solutions to choose from, and for the sake of the global economy, the health of Chinese miners and residents living near those mines, and the environment, we hope you find what you're looking for. Do you have an itch on your back that you just can't reach? For just $65,000 on the black market, you can get your very own rhino horn. But rhinos are endangered and time's running out, so order your horn today. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Joe Parada, a new graduate of Marist College with a major in political science, and Melanie Zuckerman, a rising junior at Boston University studying medical science and economics. We're also joined by Dr. Julie Klinger, a professor of geography at the University of Delaware and the author of the award-winning book, Rare Earth Frontiers, From Terrestrial Subsoils to Lunar Landscapes. Dr. Klinger, Melanie, Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Dr. Klinger, first, I know you've done quite a bit of work in the field, including work with communities in Inner Mongolia in China, where lots of rare earths mining takes place. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about 
how rare earth mining affects the lives of people in these regions and what you took away from that experience having seen it firsthand. I lived in China for five years over the 10 year period from 2003 to 2013. And during that time, I interacted with Mongolian herders who were displaced by the mine to policymakers in the central government in Beijing and the executives of various companies that were involved in mining and doing value-added processing. No matter who you talk to, there was a sense that rare earth mining was dirty and dangerous and that mining rare earth elements involved a great sacrifice. And if you were talking to uh, someone who worked in a mine, you know, they would describe it often in terms of, well, but they didn't have any other choice. This was the best possible job available. And if you were speaking to someone in a policymaking position, they might say, well, you know, the sacrifice is necessary in order to build the nation. These are first order responses. The second order responses, you know, folks tended to state that it could be done differently. Right. So whether you're talking to a mining executive or policymaker or a soil scientist at a local university or a retired miner, they'd say, yeah, during the revolutionary period and in the 20th century, of course, mining was dirty and dangerous. But now we have better technologies so we can do better. I know you've advocated for encouraging domestic rare earths production in the United States to reduce our environmental impacts and our reliance on China. But given how China has made their rare earths so cheap, what policy measures would the United States need to take to make that happen? Oh, absolutely. That's a great question. I think in order to actually repatriate rare earth mining and processing in the U.S., you know, industry has to have some sort of guarantee, right? So there is a current operational mining facility in Southern California, but they're stuck in this chicken and egg situation with downstream firms like, you know, magnet factories or hard drive producers, you know, where the downstream firms are saying, well, if you can, if you can guarantee us a product at a certain volume, we'll buy it. And that puts the mine in a really difficult situation because they can't invest in producing a certain volume until they know they have a buyer. Right. And so this is a kind of typical market dilemma. And this is where smart policy can play a key role. Right. So, for example, you know, if the government were to offer tax rebates to downstream firms that would say reimburse them some or all of the difference between the U.S. price and the China price for rare earth elements, that would help create some real market certainty so we could repatriate production. A lot of tech companies have practices like preventing consumers from repairing products on their own, which I know helps them from a profit standpoint, but how would we address these policies to limit our overconsumption of rare earths? You know, if you think about it, it's kind of crazy that someone wouldn't have the right to repair something they own. This is a pretty interesting paradox, particularly in our country, you know, where private property is one of the most sacred things. And yet, our own private property that we purchased with our own hard-earned money, such as a smartphone or a tractor, right? There's a, this happens across diverse sectors. The fact that a consumer is not able to repair something that they have purchased and therefore own is a paradox, you know, in a country that values private property. Now, opponents to the right to repair will often say, well, you know, if you take away these industry protections, then that means that people will be stuck with old technologies forever and ever. And that's not the case. Right? There's a robust consumer demand for the newest, latest, greatest thing. 
And there's actually, as far as resource scarcity goes, there is actually a solution. We could simply recycle our discarded electronics and repurpose, recapture the critical technology metals from our cell phones and laptops and jet engines that we throw away. I know you've written too about how there are rare earth mineral concentrations on the moon and there's debate as to whether or not these concentrations should be mined. So I was wondering if you could share some of your thoughts on that. This is one of my favorite things to talk about just because it's, you know, it's so bonkers. Until very recently, this was purely science fiction. There are some scenarios under which mining in outer space makes sense. And that is, if we want to support extended deep space missions, it makes sense that those missions should be able to provision themselves with resources outside of Earth's gravity well, right? That's more energy efficient for us on Earth. It requires less fuel to get missions off Earth and so on. In order to do that, you don't need to dismantle the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. What the 1967 Outer Space Treaty says is that outer space belongs to everyone. No part of outer space can be used in a way that excludes anybody else, right? I mean, the space station is one beautiful example of this. And so how that applies to mining is, look, if people are going to engage in mining the moon or other parts of outer space, it can't be done the way we mine things on Earth, where it's generally a private company that then sells it to the highest bidder. We have to come up with some other regime. The scenario under which it doesn't make sense to mine in outer space is any simple geological and economic analysis will show you that we have a couple thousand years, right, at our current rate of consumption before we run into any serious possibilities of shortage, right? And so the argument that we have to go to outer space to get these things because we're running short of them on Earth doesn't hold water, right? The evidence doesn't support that. If we start mining on the moon, would they be called rare moon minerals? <laughs> I mean, sure, why not? <laughs> right, so I'm going to hand it off to Melanie and Joe now. So Joe, let's go to you. Which forms of energy use the most rare earth minerals? And um, to what extent does the harm of these minerals cause to the environment when they're mined offset the benefit from renewable energies? So if we're talking about fossil fuel production, some rare earth elements will be added to metal alloys for say pipelines or the petroleum processing facilities themselves so that they can withstand the extraordinarily high temperatures and pressures that are required. Rare earth elements are also used in uh, nuclear energy generation. So um, again, also in the structure of the power plants themselves, because rare earths have this, these fantastic properties of making you know, the metals that they're added to stronger and more resilient to extreme fluctuations in temperature. So rare earth elements used to be actually pretty important for solar panels, uh, but a couple years ago, there were some technological breakthroughs that happened you know, across the river from you guys at MIT and also happened in Japan where a number of scientists figured out how to actually use silica in place of rare earth elements. Silica is just a fancy way of saying sand, right? And we have plenty of sand, right? But rare earth elements are still used to actually polish the glass on the solar panels. 
For wind turbines, this is where you have the most concentrated use of rare earth elements. So rare earth elements are used for the magnets that are used to power wind turbines. But the scale is so much smaller, right? We have a handful of rare earth mining sites in the world and hundreds, thousands of petroleum extraction and processing sites in the world. So if we're just talking about the environmental footprint of mining and processing, and not at all about the emissions scenario, Mining for technology elements, such as rare earth elements, just has a smaller footprint. But the good that's created by mining for rare earth elements by offsetting greenhouse gas emissions does not at all uh, let anyone off the hook, any of us off the hook, for addressing the social and environmental bads that are created by mining and processing. I sort of presume that in the at least short-term future, the world's going to need to use more rare earth minerals as underdeveloped parts of the world make advancements and not fewer. So how can we make the mining of rare earth minerals more sustainable? The good news is the technology and the engineering know-how to minimize the environmental impacts and therefore the social and public health harms generated by rare earth mining. All of this already exists, right? The reason that rare earth mining is not super duper clean is there's a lack of political will and public investment in making that happen, right? And so this is where we need a combination of smart policy instruments in order to create an environment in which firms are rewarded for investing in more sustainable production as opposed to you know, confronting the possibility of real uncertainty and going into the red financially. And then the other thing too is that, okay, so you know, if we have a short-term policy program or say tax incentives that help retrofit existing uh, mining and processing facilities so that they're lean and green and great, then we need to have a robust regulatory apparatus that actually audits and enforces this in an ongoing fashion. Research has shown that sort of one-off interventions don't stick. You've got to have the ongoing carrots up front and then you have the sticks for non-compliance that follow later. Melanie, take it away. How expensive is the pollution abatement for rare earth metals? That's a really good question. And to tell you the truth, I don't have a straightforward answer for you. And that's actually, that's really eye-opening for me because I'm used to, for years now, engaging in a debate where you have all the arguments in favor of uh, improving environmental and public safety practices. And then you have all the arguments against, which are basically, that's too expensive. But what I'm realizing now in the context of this conversation is that I don't think there's actually a study that has addressed that question. How much would it cost, right, in order to make rare earth mining and processing and recycling? Thank you for that. (laughs) Oh, well. That's, yeah, that seems like something that should be done. My second question, and this is kind of just thinking about the monologue earlier, China, what was said was that they have been using state-owned enterprises for mining their rare earth minerals. Is there a way that the people who are internalizing these externalities are being paid for, or is the profit being absorbed by the state? There are plenty of cases in China where groups of people who have suffered injury either as a result of working in the mines or living downstream from the pollution 
know, where they've gotten together and they've actually petitioned the government for some form of compensation. In fact, direct compensation tends to be inadequate. It's a couple hundred or a couple thousand dollars per household. And at the end of the day, what does that do? right, if you've suffered a debilitating or chronic illness. The money that a state-owned enterprise makes is effectively, it both belongs to that company, but it's also, it can be allocated at the discretion of the central government. Dr. Klinger, thank you so much for joining us. I think we may have found a new study to do. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is fabulous. These are really great questions. Thank you for that. Melanie, if you want to um, do your master's or PhD on that question, let me know. <laughs> Thank you. All right, so let's have a conversation. And I'm curious to hear what your initial thoughts were, if you thought about it before this, and if any of the solutions jumped out at you as interesting. In terms of general impressions, initially I was more so scared that we're running out of rare earth minerals, what do we do about it? Our entire technology industry will collapse. That isn't, you know, what where it took us. It turns out that we have enough rare earth minerals. But I do think we definitely need to start thinking about how to abate that pollution or, you know, bring it over to America so we can more tightly regulate it. Yeah, whoever named rare earth minerals did a really bad job at naming it. <laughs> I was most struck by Dr. Klinger's sort of thoughts on the future of rare earth minerals, because I sort of presumed that she was going to suggest that we needed to try to wean ourselves off of them or otherwise reduce our dependency on them. But it seemed to me that she was more concerned with just finding a way to continue using them in a way that's sustainable, which I thought was interesting. What, in terms of bolstering domestic production and relying less on Chinese rare earths, what policy measures did you think might be most interesting or effective? I'm generally skeptical of tariffs and also of subsidies, so I guess it doesn't leave much. Although I, I do think that, you know, for people who are sort of orthodox in the question of free markets, they do have to grapple with the fact that a market integrated with China really isn't free. I think maybe there's something to be done with treaties, maybe revitalization of some sort of T TPP-like treaty, and then maybe some sort of subsidy for domestic industry. I just, I think an eye has to be kept on not raising prices for consumers, because I think that's when you'll lose any political will you gained. I agree with Joe in that I'm a little skeptical that tariffs will do anything other than raise the price for Americans, um, unless, you know, the tariff is so high that it's above what it would cost to abate that pollution, you know, just from an economic perspective. But uh, I'm also skeptical in that Japan buys a lot of rare earth minerals and, and is a big tech producer as well. Um, so unless it was, you know, a worldwide sort of treaty, I, I don't think it would work. Um, I, I would be more tuned to the idea of a subsidy just because I think that that would encourage, you know, not only domestic production, but also perhaps you could have a subsidy to maybe, you know, reduce the costs of the environmental, saving the environment in, in these instances. I would also be interested in tech companies like Apple or Samsung make a lot of money, make a lot of profit per phone. And I would be wondering whether or not they could internalize some of the costs of pollution abatement domestically. Both of you mentioned subsidies and on the one hand, it would make our prices more competitive with China's. They're also kind of artificial prices. And 
given how Dr. Klinger was saying it's a net environmental bad and not a environmental good, having prices lower than the free market value is kind of a bit of a paradox. I interpreted it as a subsidy matching the cost of abating the pollution for um, safely mining these metals in Southern California, for example, the mine that was mentioned, and making that match the market price for China. So to me, that seems like a fair solution because it's not depriving the American consumer or the American, you know, business enterprises who need rare earth minerals, but it's also not, you know, creating a tariff situation that could cause a trade war. It makes a lot of sense to me that the goal would be not necessarily to artificially reduce the price of domestically produced um, rare earth minerals, but just to sort of say to companies, you know, if we're asking you to shoulder these economic burdens to make this mining safer, then we're going to help pay for it as a, as a government. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. I suspect really the biggest issue is going to be stability in the regulatory environment. In China, the government's goal is to, um, you know, maximize its own profits and they don't really care about the environmental concerns. Whereas in America, the regulatory environment changes from administration to administration based on shifting goals and public policy. So if somehow America could guarantee a stable regulatory environment with a sort of stable long-term goal, I think that would probably help a lot because at least companies would know that they weren't leaving, you know, the devil they know in China, where at least there's a stable regulatory environment aimed towards maximizing profits for a, a rapidly changing and shifting environment in America. I don't know how you can do that other than getting some sort of broad congressional bipartisan coalition behind a sort of unified vision of what our policy should be. So let's move now to the idea of finding ways to use the rare earth minerals more efficiently. First, I'm curious about reusing products. It doesn't seem to be that common of a practice. So I'm curious if you think we should be doing that more, how we could get people to do it and what that could look like. Speaking from personal experience, often like the buy-ins that are offered by, for example, like Verizon, when you go and get a new phone or if you break your laptop and you're looking to get a new one, the price quickly deflates in that my phone can be two years old and I'll take it to Verizon and they say, oh, we'll give you a $30 rebate for your two-year-old phone. And I'm like, well, you know, for 30 bucks, I'd rather have an iPod, you know, that I can play Spotify on if my, um, if my phone breaks, than to trade it in. Um, so I think maybe if there was some sort of government program to have some sort of buyback with more fair pricing to the consumers that somehow took into account the costs of rare earth mining to make it a little bit more feasible for the consumer, but also, you know, offset the costs of the mining. I think that would work well. You know, if there was a sufficiently strong public pressure campaign against corporations like Apple, Samsung, to make their products more environmentally sound in this respect and perhaps in others, um, specifically by educating consumers about the environmental damages caused and also the human rights damages caused by mining these minerals, you could see a situation where corporations sort of moved in a more environmentally sound direction. I mean, I think especially with Apple, right, where their successive hardware updates, you know, the new phones they put out are really not that different from the old ones. It could be a sort of interesting avenue for them to say, well, this is the iPhone eco, right? And it's safer and it's, you know, uses less for minerals and it's recycled and less, you know, 
people in China and other developing countries were forced to work for, you know, a dollar a day to mine it. I could see a public pressure campaign doing a lot of good in this case. I like iPhone Eco. That's a good idea. I expect some sort of check to come to me from Apple if ever that puts it, that's put into a production. Oh, I think you should have a residual check for every single iPhone Eco sold. <laughs> I'm a bit skeptical about a public pressure campaign. Um, just as like, you know, a solvency model, for example, in the 90s, Nike was really hard hit with human rights violations in Vietnam and China. And they, and there was a lot of public pressure on them to, you know, pay their workers more, you know, not use children in sweatshops. And they, you know, they, they cited, they cherry picked a lot of data saying, look, we fixed it, we fixed it. And then, you know, there was an internal review, I think, like a couple of years ago that said that you know, they still were using sweatshops with miners and it really didn't fix a lot. So I, I am concerned with a, a public a public pressure campaign that doesn't sufficiently audit the corporations. And I just think that we can't really trust corporations to make these decisions on their own because even though Apple and, and all these, you know, Silicon Valley companies claim to be so progressive and forward thinking, like in the end, they are profit they are for-profit companies. And so I think that's just where me and Joe differ. I think that there would need to be some sort of public policy, some sort of governmental program or intervention that ensures that we are going to adequately abate the pollution and adequately allow people to repair their own technology and allow people to recycle it and be paid properly for it. There are no laws really, to my knowledge, requiring corporations to to disclose working conditions in their factories, much less subcontractor factories, which is what the situation really is in a lot of cases. But I do think that there could be a regulatory environment where corporations were required to disclose the percentage of their products, let's say, that had rare earth minerals. So there'd be, so there'd be in some sense, there'd be a way to sort of just use legally required transparency to allow consumers to check up on this sort of thing. I, I accept that some public pressure campaigns have failed, some have succeeded. Some have succeeded. Excuse me. Drinking and driving has become viewed so differently in the last several decades, not really because of any government interference, but because of mother against drunk driving and various sort of public pressure campaigns. And I think the other the other thing is, if a public pressure campaign fails because not enough public buy-in, government intervention would also fail because there wasn't enough public buy-in. Because if not enough people care about the issue to affect their consumer habits, they won't vote based on that issue when you you said like if there isn't public force behind a public pressure campaign there won't be force behind a government campaign yes i agree with you but just from like in a paternalistic perspective i think that um the government should be there to protect people even if you know there isn't an emotional backing it, it's very removed you know one that we're not going to run out of rare earth minerals for thousands of years two that the pollution is happening in china and these huge hospitals are being built in china but, you know, I think this might just have to be a place where the government steps in. Yeah, there would have to be a lot of public will for pressure on companies or for any sort of government intervention, whether it be mandates or uh, monetary incentives. So those are really good points. And to add to that discussion, we mentioned some of the other practices that tech companies have, things like you can't get a software update, so people buy new ones. There are limitations on what policies you can put forward 
that would require companies to perpetuate software updates past a point where they don't want to, or to um, not artificially shorten the lifespan of their products. I mean, we, you know, our, our nation, our, our whole culture is um, largely predicated on the idea of private property ownership, and um, that includes a corporation's ownership of its own production and products until it's sold. Um, my understanding is that you, like, you can get an iPhone repaired by someone other than Apple, you just void the warranty. Um, so that's, I mean, I suppose there could be a policy solution there. I just get uncomfortable with the idea of limiting a contract, which is what a warranty is, entered into by two competent parties. I definitely agree that it would be very legally difficult to, number one, just from the original, you know, situation that was posed, somehow proving that, you know, iPhones and and other devices are purposefully being slowed down in order to get you to buy a new product. That seems like it could be easily won in the court of law by like Apple saying, no, like this was an actual meaningful update. We needed to slow your camera down so that we can have this other function. And I just don't see how that would be legally solvent. And I don't, I just don't see it happening. Um, In terms of the warranty, um, I think that in a perfect world, I think that a company shouldn't be allowed to limit the repair of its products to just that company. You know, I take my laptop with water damage to Apple and they say, uh, we're the only ones who can fix it and it's going to cost you $800, which is more than the cost of your laptop. If it was open to the free market, I, I think we would see a lot more repair. And I think that people do have a right to repair. Yeah, I think both of you made a lot of really good points. You found a lot you agreed on and some stuff you disagreed on. So that was a really great conversation. Joe and Melanie, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This wraps up episode six of The Sweaty Penguin. Thank you again to Julie Klinger for her insights. Stay tuned for next week's episode. We'll see you there. Today's episode was written by Caroline Kale, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Sabrina Rowlings, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to the Boston University Build Lab. For bonus content, follow us on Facebook at Sweaty Penguin News, Twitter at Sweat Penguin Pod, or Instagram at Sweaty Penguin Pod.